Welcome to Cornerstone Reformed Baptist Church. Thank you for using and sharing our resources. What you're about to hear is God's Word from one of our teaching elders. We trust that God's Word will inspire, instruct, and bless you. For further teachings or information on our ministry, please visit us on our website at cornerstonerbc.com. That's cornerstonerbc.com. I'm really glad to be with you all. Grab a Bible, turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 24 and 25. It's actually a cross-reference, those of you will know, to the text. I think that's plastered on the front of this pulpit here. Uh, we're going to take up the New Testament iteration of this passage. We're studying 1 Peter at Ascension Church, so I thought this would be a wonderful word to bring to our dear brothers and sisters, the family of faith here at, uh, at Cornerstone. So we're going to read the text. And then we're going to see how God would speak to us through His Word. Once we've, this is kind of my practice, once we've read the text, I'm just going to pray and ask God to, to bless our time around His Word, that He would make it a veritable feast for us this afternoon. So without further ado, God's Word reads like this, For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, and the flower falls, but the Word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. Amen. So it's pretty plain and clear that our theme, our subject today will be the the Word of God. And I have to say, as a preacher of, I think, going on 23, 24 years now, I think that there are few subjects as enjoyable, refreshing, and rewarding to preach from than to actually preach not just the Word of God, but the subject of the Word of God, from the Word of God. It just is such a, a privilege, and we have that privilege together today. And what Peter wants us to think about is the futility of all things beside or in contrasted with the Word of God. All things in this world, in this material existence is like grass or like flowers. And those flowers, they fall. And that grass, it withers in contrast and in light of the Word of God. This is a a beautiful phrase. It appears twice in the book of Isaiah and here in 1 Peter. All flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. All flesh. All material things is how you should read that. Not just on a, on a human level, but the entire material world is reflected of as just, as just all flesh that is nothing but grass. And even, even the glory, we think about when humans do good things, like the advancement of technology or, or new medicines or the building of empires or liberating of people. It's just a, it's just a flower of the field that when a, when a strong noonday sun comes out, it, it withers and it fails. So from the tiniest, almost atomic-sized bacteria to the enormity of a, a blue whale, the thundering of a pride of elephants or ferocity of the Bengal tiger, a pride of a sub-Saharan lion, to the Caesars of Rome, the pharaohs of ancient Egypt, military commanders turned emperors in their wake like Alexander the Great or, or Charlemagne or Genghis Khan or Napoleon. And modern empires that, that seem to be incessant in their march across the globe, like, like Spain or Japan or, or Britain. We think about all of, this, all of this consummated history, and this is how it's all summarized. It is but failing grass. These who 
shine with transcendent glory are merely a flower. Sometimes you look out on that, that, that meadow. Maybe for, for most of us, it's a, it's a screensaver, not an actual experience. But let's pretend we've all been there. This, this, this unhindered, unmolested by Western man, this beautiful meadow. And in this grassy field, there's these little flowers that just kind of just emerging their heads above the grass. And yet, a strong wind, a powerful sun, and it withers and fades. Now, that's pretty jarring. Maybe even seems a little over-exaggerated. To think about all of our human experience, all of our human history, to be just reduced to that simple explanation that it amounts to grass. And there's nothing wrong with grass. Like, we all have that family member that loves their grass a little too much. Anybody? Just me? Like, I've got this brother that mows his lawn every second day and then goes and mows his neighbor's lawn every second. He's like, they don't like him on his block because he just is constantly in their yard. He loves grass. But it doesn't matter how much someone loves grass, right? I can see it's clearly just my family with the weirdo. You're all looking at me like, what on earth, right? Grass is fine insofar as it goes. But the contrast is with the Word. The Word. It's the Word. The Word has worn out emperors and outlasted their empires. The Word is the anvil, many theologians. I think Charles Spurgeon maybe said it best. The Word of God is the anvil that has worn out every hammer that has struck against it. That's the Word of God. The Word has brought the world's best, brightest, most menacing and hostile to their knees. The Word searches, we know, the hearts and the intentions of man. The Word displays the open weaknesses of all flesh because the Word is indomitable, it's pure, it's living and abiding. And particularly, this word, as we just spoke about, the, the qualities of the word of God that Peter wants to highlight for us today in this text is the word's ability to outlast and the word's ability to be a living, vital message to those that receive it. The word is active, therefore. The word is lasting. The word is enduring. Peter calls it abiding. I think one of the best examples of this that I can offer you, uh, being a little bit of a student of history myself, uh, comes from the experience of Paul the Apostle, when those who know their New Testament well enough know that in Acts 17 it records the Apostle Paul going up Mars Hill, the, the Areopagus, to, to, to encounter the theological, uh, sorry, the philosophical, I should say, the, the titans of his day. This was Athens, the ancient city boasting the brightest minds. They're arrayed before the humble, broken-bodied Paul the Apostle. And Paul, armed with nothing other than the Word of God. Now, the way this comes about, we've read the book of Acts, we understand this, is Paul is in Athens and he's somewhat imposed upon. He's meant to be taking a bit of a break. He's gone through some horrific experiences. It's time for a rest. And he says his soul is provoked with him. Remember that in the book of Acts. His soul is provoked because all the idols in the city... And so he starts to preach in the marketplace initially. And, and, and the, the topic of his sermons is provoking such interest that the great thinkers, the brightest minds up on the, the hill of learning, the, the mountain of education. Luke tells us in the book of Acts they've done nothing all their time but just simply debating, discussing, and learning new things. And so they invite Paul the Apostle to come and address them. What I want to do for you this afternoon as we think about this encounter of the Apostle Paul is I want to actually appeal to an historian that I, I found a lot of good value in. His name's John Pollock. Many of you know John Pollock as a biographer. He's written a biography of uh, uh, Whitfield and, and other characters that we would respect. And 
He wrote a biography of the Apostle Paul. It's a wonderful read. If you've got some spare time, you want to read it. But I want to pull out just a paragraph as Pollock brings us into that scene of the Apostle on Mars Hill. So Pollock says when Paul arrives into that, that open arena of learning, that, that, that place where, where the human mind is elevated to its, its zenith, a prosecutor steps forward on a place called the Stone of Pride, and with a grave courtesy, he uh, hid his amusement and he addressed Paul. These are the words that Luke tells us. He says, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now, there's a hint of menace in those words, and historians in our midst today can hear the hint of menace because it was precisely Socrates who was condemned to death for doing what? Teaching strange doctrines. There's a, there's a word play, and you'll see this now whenever you read Acts 17 in your Bible, when the prosecutor proposes to Paul that he would give an account, he, he, he surreptitiously hides this, this menacing accusation. Now, we know in that speech, we're not going to read it, although that would be a great use of our time to read Paul's speech to the, the Areopagans of, of Mars Hill. Well, Paul's climax was in reference to the certain judgment to come. We know that Paul says, God has attested this to you all by raising this man, this Christ, from the dead. We go back to John Pollock, and in his own poetic way, he says, A guffaw broke the decorum of the assembly. A hubbub of voices and laughter interrupt Paul. Isn't that what Luke tells us? They burst out in laughter, in laughter at him, at his expense. They'd heard enough, Pollock says. If he really thought that a man could come to life again after he dies and the earth drinks up his blood, such folly proved he was unworthy to be accredited as a teacher among the wise of Athens. That was clearly the judgment. That's clearly how it's written and depicted in the book of Acts 17. In fact, they said, we will hear you on this subject some other time. But Paul was smart enough to know it was a polite dismissal. So Paul withdrew. Paul descends the rock with his back to the Acropolis. One Areopagite, Dionysius, we read in Acts, he follows Paul. He seems to be caught up and compelled by this message of a, of a saviour who's come into the world to redeem sinners and by which God will judge the world. But Paul had to leave quickly. The council had refused him a license to teach But Paul refused to be muzzled. He would move onward and rely on Silas and Timothy to catch up with him. Athens had rejected Paul. That's the summation of the engagement of the apostle on Mars Hill. And yet Paul could never know. Unless through some miracle the Spirit had inspired Paul to know. We have zero evidence of that. Paul could never know that this speech that he delivered that day would go down in posterity besides the funeral oration of Pericles and the Philippics of Demosthenes as one of the great speeches of Athens. Paul could not have known, not in the natural sense, that entire tomes of literature would be written about that speech that he gave. Paul could not have known that within just a few hundred years, the Parthenon itself will become a Christian church. Paul could not have known that 19 centuries later, when Greece became once again a sovereign state, its national flag, bearing proudly a cross on it, flying beside the ruins of the Parthenon, would be lowered to half-mast each Good Friday and raised on Easter Day in honor of Christ's resurrection. Such is the glory of the word. 
And Jesus gave us this sense to anticipate that more often than not, the word will do its work irresistibly, but in time, in process, sometimes imperceptibly. As Paul engaged with these, these philosophical minds in which the likes, of, the, the likes of history is not seen, the Stoics and the Epicureans, and Paul delivers this speech, and in the most immediate account of that scenario, it's pretty easy to write, mostly failure. One convert, and we don't even know if Dionysius gets baptized. Later on, Paul says, I baptized no one in that region except, the, of course, the family in Corinth. So questions remain, was it a successful evangelistic campaign of the apostle? And yet here we are two millennia later and over 90% of Greeks today at least profess to be believers in Jesus and his triumphant resurrection. This is what Peter is referring to. This is the living, the abiding, the word of God. This is the nature of the word of God to outlast all resistance and all attack because all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass but we know that grass withers and flowers fall but the word of the lord remains forever now beyond that peter doesn't want us just to have really big and even intimidating and robust views of of the word of god if you if you're sitting here a little bit clueless as to what we mean we mean the bible just to be really clear we mean the bible where god has codified and canonized his inscripturated revelation if if we think about just all these great ideas and qualities of scripture that's one thing but peter is driving us to application he wants us to think about the accessibility of the word of god so Peter's next thought then, of course, is, and this word is the good news that was preached to you. We, we could for sure go on for hour after hour and Sunday after Sunday and week after week, month after month and talk about how great the word of God is. But there's a sense in which maybe we think about if this word of God is so grand, so noble, so glorious a power, is it inaccessible? Is it within our reach? Is it for us? If the word of God is brighter than every star, outlasts the oldest atom in the universe, humbling the brightest minds, judging every thought and intent of every human heart, might it seem a little out of reach? Maybe it seem a little like it's just the privilege for the most privileged. Could it seem that sinners like us might not be afforded possession of this lost, lofty thing? that brings to naught earthly judges, kings, queens, and intellectuals and conquerors. The word is the good news, Peter says, that's preached to you. It is the special inheritance of the world's weakest, the vilest, the most undeserving and unassuming. It's not for the best and the brightest. And of course, it's available to them should they humble their heart and receive it. But scripture is clear. It is to the weak things of the world that God has bestowed this treasure in earthen vessels. The power of the word of God is inexhaustible. Its lifetime is without limit. Jesus labors this point, doesn't he? That even heaven and earth will pass away before the smallest punctuation mark of God's word will ever lose its effect or begin to expire or fade. I wonder if you've ever heard the testimony of a gentleman named Luke Short. I don't imagine many of you have. Maybe some of you have, but it's unlikely Luke Short was an ordinary man living in a colony or the colony of Virginia in the 1700s, so a while ago. When he was 103 years old, now just, just pause for a moment, 
Almost no one lived to 103 years old in the 1700s when they didn't have modern medical inventions like, I don't know, washing your hands, right? Or, or Purell sanitizer or, or daily brushing your teeth, right? People in this day and age tended to not quite live as long as we are afforded the privilege today. But this gentleman, true story, lived to be 103 years old. And at that age, that ripe old age, he going about his daily business, just an ordinary guy, he was suddenly struck with a memory of a sermon that he'd heard 85 years earlier. And that day, with the force of which that sermon came upon him, he, for the first time in his life, trusted in Christ and repented of his sins. So his tombstone, still today, reads like this. Here lies a babe in grace, aged three years old, who died according to nature, 106. The power of the word of God. The power. Now, for me, as, as, as a preacher, as someone who's dedicated their life to proclaiming the word of God, there is tremendous comfort in that. The thing about God will always use his word. God will always employ the means of his word to achieve his purposes. And sometimes the intervening time might be decades sometimes instantaneous sometimes like paul on mars hill he can preach a tremendous sermon giving eyewitness account to the resurrected lord jesus christ and it takes centuries for god's purposes to be performed this word this word of god this as peter calls it this gospel that is preached to you touches the furthest reaches of our world and yet remains in a state of perpetual spread. I want to share a story with you today, and I'm hoping I haven't already exhausted all my time. Um, the story I'm going to share is about a missionary uh, who went to China. Some of you may know this story. Probably, again, not a lot of you would know this story. A young missionary woman, his name was Gladys Alwood, went to China at the start of last century, about 1910 or a little bit later than that. She went and served for decades in China. And, and primarily what her work was, was, was among orphans and, and children. And in one particular season of her life, she, she found herself in the far northwestern regions of mainland China. Again, a, a true story as it's told on her own pen in her own memoirs. And she wanted to go to all the villages that had never heard about Jesus before and begin to disseminate the good news of Christ. Her biography relates this, this amazing story. She talks about how she, she wants to keep walking along these old ancient roads and, 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 and wayfares and finding new villages and outstations to proclaim. Well, the story is she sets off one day and each day she tries to walk from one village to another and, and, and maybe find Christians to, to spend time with and encourage and pray and do some evangelistic work and, and move to the next village. And the story is that as she's doing this week on and week out, she comes at one point to the proverbial end of the road, or maybe quite literal end of the road. She says to the villagers that she's staying with, she says, what's the next village? Or, or what's, what's down this way? And they said, literally nothing. She said, that can't be true. There's got to be something. After all, the, the road is here for some reason, right? Like, there's got to be something down there. And they, they all cautioned her quite strongly, don't experiment with your own, with your own livelihood and trying to attempt to walk that road. And she was determined. And so a, a medical doctor, a Christian in the village, decided he would accompany her. And so they began walking. First day, second day, third day, fourth day, nothing could be seen. In fact, the fifth day, there was nothing. Just clear mountain air of emptiness. And they kept walking. 
Now, the doctor who had accompanied her had only promised to go with her for five days, and then he, had, he said, I'm going to turn back. That's about as far as my extremity will allow me to go. But they get to the sixth day, and he says, well, I'm, I'm up for more walking. They get to the tenth day, having seen no one and no sign of civilization at all. And at this point, they've entirely run out of all of their supplies. So Gladys gets pretty desperate. She says to the doctor, his name's Dr. Huang, she said, we desperately need to pray because now we're quite at our extremity, not just insofar as our supplies go, but as our energy and our patience and our, our livelihood. It, it seemed like all of the warnings of the last village were starting to materialize. I'll read it in her own words. She said, we threw our bundles down. I knelt down and I said, dear God, have mercy on us. Have mercy on us. Can you see what kind of a plight we are in? Give us food and shelter for the night. And then very calmly, the doctor, Dr. Huang, began to pray. Oh God, send us that one person that you want us to tell about Jesus. We've witnessed to no one for so long, but you have sent us here for the very special purpose to tell someone about Jesus. Gladys said, I, I felt ashamed because I was praying about my material needs, but the doctor was desperate to remain on the purpose of mission. After a few moments, I said, shall we sing a song? They began to sing a a Christian hymn to God. So we sat and sang, and our voices carried far into the clean mountain air. Suddenly, Dr. Huang jumped to his feet. He yelled out, there's our man, and ran off before I could stop him. He'd rushed off to the mountainside, and next I hear him shouting back, come on up, I have found our man. At some point, wondering whether starvation had begun to make him delirious. Gladys said, I scrambled up to my feet. I began running toward his voice was coming from. And there, leaning against a rock, was a Tibetan Buddhist monk. I stared from him to Dr. Huang because I knew that monks were not allowed to even see, let alone talk or interact with women under any circumstances. She says, I said to Dr. Huang, did you tell him I was a woman? Yes, but he invited you and I to come and spend the night in the monastery. And that is where we're going to go and spend the evening. I hesitated, and then the man, the monk, spoke to me in an accent I could perfectly understand. He said, we have waited so long for you to come and tell us about the God who loves. She said, my heart jumped. And without another word or any hesitation, we followed our guide up the path down the other side of the mountain. And we stood at the top of this side of this mountain was a monastery, imposing and stately. And as the huge gates closed behind us, I wondered, will we ever emerge out of here alive? In her own words, she goes on and tells this account. There was a party of monks who greeted us almost reverently and escorted us to small rooms. They began bringing us food and replenishments and, and supplies. And we began to eat and drink this daintily prepared food. Then I was joined and we were escorted to a very large courtyard in which there were 500 sitting cushions made of coconut leaves arranged in a rough semicircle and on every coconut leaf cushion sat a monk with his hands piously crossed and his head reverently bowed. We were taken to two empty seating cushions in the center. We were sat down and I turned to Dr. Huang and I said, what on earth do I expect us to do? He said, now we will sing. In a very trembling voice, Gladys said, I sang a hymn in Chinese. 
Once I finished, there was a deathly silence that followed. And then Dr. Huang began to communicate the good news of Christ. He told them about the baby born in Bethlehem and the, sinner die, uh, sorry, the Savior dying for sinners on Calvary. And then he turned to me and he said, sing again. So we sang again. And still the 500 monks sat entirely immobile and silent on their cushions as Dr. Huang began to tell more about the good news of Jesus. And this pattern, I sing, he spoke, went on for hours, she said, until I was on the verge of collapse. I said, I cannot stay here anymore. I need to go and rest. She said, I was taken to a room. And within a few minutes, there was a knock on my door. Two of these monks stood there and said, are you too tired to tell us more? They came in, they listened intently, and then went away. A few minutes later, two more came, knocked on the door. Are you too tired to tell us more? Always the same questions, always the same curiosities. Will you explain how and why Jesus died? Will you explain how he could love me? Gladys said these men never questioned that God was the creator of the world. They never doubted the fact of a virgin birth. They did not consider any of the miracles of Scripture incredible or beyond belief. It was just the wonder of God's love that obsessed them. Christ's death on Calvary filled their minds with awe and reverence. The next morning, she said, I spoke to Dr. Huang, found out he had the exact same experience all night long. Neither of us got any rest. She said, this went on for an entire week. At the end of the week, I received a summons to go before the head priest of which I had not seen so far and was terrified of because of the clear reverence all of the other monks had held him in. Not Dr. Huang, Gladys said I was invited to go alone. To my surprise, he spoke perfect Mandarin, of which I also spoke fluently. We understood each other perfectly. We talked about various things until I plucked up the courage, Gladys said, to just ask him, well... Put it in modern lingo, what is going on here? This is crazy. How did you let a woman come into your monastery to address your priests, communicate the, the essence of a religion that is so foreign and, and, and so alien to them, and how are they so receptive? The head monk said, it's a very long story. But on the side of our mountain, we grow licorice herb. And as each season's harvest comes in, we take the herb down to the villages at quite a distance and we sell it. We buy supplies back to the monastery. That's the only contact we ever have with the outside world. One year, our men took the harvest down on mules to the faraway village to sell the licorice herb. And there was a man standing in the center of the village square screaming, who wants one? Who wants one? He was yelling. He was yelling, salvation, free and for nothing. Whoever believes, get salvation. The monks took the piece of paper that he was waving and written on that paper was John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And then the head monk showed Gladys this paper, old, worn, tattered, fragmented, plastered to the wall inside the monastery. He said, for years, we've read over this We've meditated on this. We seem to feel ourselves believing its message, but we couldn't comprehend the, the nature of it. Who is this God? How does he so love? Who is his son? What does all this mean? What does it mean to believe on him? And they decided that they would ask this God, pray to this God revealed in this one verse, 
that he would send messengers to them, be they so far from any point of civilization, to tell them the good news of Jesus. And one day, there was a monk out on the hillside collecting sticks exactly a week ago, and he heard some voices singing down on the path. And he knew in an instant that only people that knew the God of that verse would be people who would have traveled this far and be singing hymns. We raced down, we grabbed you, and the rest is the week that you have here experienced. He said, we've believed all that you've said, all that these sacred scriptures have contained. We have not found any reason to doubt this record. Gladys summarizes the story by saying this. Dr. Huang and I were privileged to be used of God as his messengers to share this gospel in this place in his appointed time. We leave the rest to him and the work of his Holy Spirit. Gladys says, I've often wondered what happened to those 500 monks. The fact that many of them believed and trusted and even received salvation, she says, I have no shadow of doubt. God's love had prepared the soil to receive the seed of the word. Only eternity will ever tell of the result, she says, of the strangest week I've ever spent as a missionary in China. The word of God, penetrating, pursuing, revealing, enlightening hearts and minds. And Peter says, this word of God is the gospel that was preached to you. This gospel. Now, the greatest travesty that we could experience here this afternoon is labor on about this point. The gospel, the gospel, and yet at no point talk about the gospel. A number of years ago, I was privileged to attend a conference not far from here, actually down further down the Gold Coast. The entire conference was pastors all over southeast Queensland to talk about the gospel. You can imagine every session, right? Gospel-centered worship in church, gospel-centered communion, gospel-centered seating arrangement, gospel-centered bulletins. Everything was gospel-centered. And I was there for four days and not one person at least simply articulated the gospel. My heart was broken by this. It was the conviction of the apostles, put most plainly and simply in the words of Paul in Romans 1, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation to all who believe. Not messages about the gospel or around the gospel or referencing the gospel, but the pure, unadulterated message of God's love for this sinful world that he would send his son who would live sin-free, yet dies in atonement upon the cross, to redeem and ransom all and any who merely appropriates that by grace through faith. That this Jesus rose from the dead in victory and triumph and leads captivity captive. He leads us in triumphal procession because by grace are we saved. This is the gospel. Now, we're churchgoers, right? That's evident by the fact we're here. Yet how many of us can say that this is my gospel? This is my possession. Not because I'm in any authority over it. We're always servants to the gospel. But because it, it's mine. Because I've trusted in it. I've laid hold of it. I've, I've anchored all of my hope, all of my expectancy, and all of my certainty that one day I will face God and He will not dredge up every sin I've ever committed because those sins have already been perfectly satisfied in the death of Christ. This is the gospel, Peter says, that is now and preached to you.